This is the Redemption Church Podcast. For a list of messages, events, and more, please visit experienceredemption.com. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Here is today's message. All right. Good morning. Morning, morning. All right. If you're new around here, my name is Stephen. I am the pastor. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You are joining us at the conclusion of a five-week series entitled Two Lies and a Truth. This has been a, uh, it's been a really fun series. We've been teaching through Isaiah chapter 59. Today we're going to conclude that, but I'll say this is also kind of like a transitionary series uh, into next week. And then after that, uh, so two weeks from today, we'll launch our Christmas series. How many of you are ready for Christmas? Yay. All right. Lindsay bought like all of the Christmas gifts in like September. I was like, we are killing it this year. She was way ahead. Uh, And so, and then, uh, you know, this week I tell my kids, no Christmas music, no Christmas trees until after Thanksgiving. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. Good. Yes. By the way, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And uh, so anyway, we, uh, this week is kind of part one of a little two-week series that we're going to entitle Looking Forward. And it's really a- asking the question, what do we do next? We've been studying through Isaiah 59, and clearly, uh, Isaiah 59, there's some heaviness to it, particularly at the beginning. And at the beginning of this series, uh, for those of you who were there, can remember back five weeks ago, I said, Isaiah 59 is both depressing and hopeful at the same time. When you begin to read through Isaiah 59, you see a world that is broken. Uh, And as we've talked about in this series, the church fails first, and then after that, culture implodes. And the hub of Isaiah 59 is right in the center of the chapter. In Isaiah 59, 14, it says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And so we have spent four weeks talking about the the presence of that or the reality of that in the world that we live in. But at the beginning of the series, I said it's both depressing or it's reality, but it's also hopeful. And so last week, we turned to the first part of the hope, and that is godly men. Uh, God was wondering, it says he wondered that there was no man to intercede. Or said another way, that there were not enough godly men in the days of Israel there to look out and go, this is wrong. Someone should do something about this. And so we uh, laid out last week what it looks like for men to be godly and to intercede in a broken and a fallen world. We're Today, we're going to talk about the second part of hope, looking forward. How do we go from here? How did Israel go from that moment? And and really, the story of Israel there, that's what's great about the Bible. The Bible tells us what happened. It also tells us what is happening, and it tells us what's going to happen. And oftentimes, it does it all at the same time. And so we'll see that today in a couple of different ways. Today, I'm going to lay out kind of a theological uh, looking forward. These are reasons why we should have hope right now. I'm going to give you four reasons to have hope this morning. And so we'll talk about theologically, this is why we have hope no matter what is going on around us. And then next week, I want to talk practically how then do we look forward? What do we do together as uh, the body of Christ? Uh, How do we partner together uh, as a church into uh, 
looking forward into seeing what God wants to do next. And so we're just going to walk right through the passage. Uh, like much of the Word of God, this just kind of preaches itself. And so I'll have four things for you this morning, four reasons on why we can have hope as we think about looking forward. So let's start. We're in verse 20. And uh, verse 20 starts like this. It says, and a redeemer will come to Zion. Now, this particular part, obviously Isaiah is a prophetic book, uh, but this section right here at the end, uh, it's heavy laden in prophecy. And what it's doing is it's pointing to the preferred future, and it's pointing to it in three distinct ways. And it's saying that a redeemer, or our redemption, uh, hope will come to Zion. It's not saying it might, uh, it's not saying it's in question, it's saying it absolutely will. Now, we see this fulfilled in, uh, well, we've seen it fulfilled in two ways, and we'll see it fulfilled in a third way. But what this is teaching us is that in the midst of a fallen culture, uh, when the church looks like it has fallen as well, that redemption will come. There's an assurance of it for the Christian. From a corporate perspective, there's an assurance for us uh, that God is going to keep being God, that God is going to keep doing what God does. From an individual perspective, there's an insurance. Uh, an assurance for us in our salvation, and assurance for us in our eternal state, where we'll spend eternity. And both the corporate and the individual confidence here of the reader should go up as they understand this text. The first layer that we're to understand this, he says, a redeemer will come to Zion. Now, he was speaking in one way, very specifically, to the Israelite people. See, what's going to happen to Israel after this moment? Uh, God's punishment is going to fall on them. The Israelite people are going to be deported to Babylon, and they're going to spend 70 years in captivity there. But then a redeemer is going to come to Zion. God's going to use a man like Nehemiah uh, and Ezra. He's going to use Queen Esther to preserve them in those times. Uh, but eventually, God's people, they're going to come back to the land of Zion, God's chosen land for the Israelites. He, the, they're going to return there. God's going to use people, and they're going to uh, rebuild the nation of Israel. And we'll see this fulfilled uh, about a hundred years or so after this is written. And so it does happen. A redeemer returns to Zion. Now, after that time, when the Israelites return uh, to the land of Israel, they rebuild the nation. Uh, eventually, after that, we enter into what often is referred to as the silent years. So that kind of 400 years from the end of the Old Testament until the beginning of the New Testament, written and recorded in the four Gospels. And then what comes after that? Well, Christmas. And what do we see in Luke chapter 2? We see this little line uh, that says, all of those who were waiting for the redemption or waiting for the Redeemer to come to Israel. It's a second layer of fulfillment to this text that ultimately God would send not just the, the earthly Redeemer of Ezra or Nehemiah for the Israelites to return to their land, but God would send a spiritual redemption to Israel. A Redeemer would come to Zion. We see this ultimately fulfilled then, right, with Christ. And so Christ then is born. Uh, we'll kick off our Christmas series two weeks from today. And we'll see that Christ is born, he comes to Israel, and a redeemer has come to Zion. And right, many of the Israelites there, they're going to rally around Christ. Not all of them, of course. Some of them will. Some of them won't. There will be a great salvation uh, early on there when Christ is on the earth. And then what happens? Christ dies. Christ is resurrected. And now the world sits, we do right now, in the church age. And what hope do we have? We have a hope as well. What's the hope? 
hope. It's the same hope that they had, that a Redeemer will come to Zion. And what will that be, or when will that be fulfilled? It will be fulfilled when Christ Jesus will return for his church, and he will return where? He will return to Zion. He will descend where it is that he ascended. Christ will come back in a moment. He will return for his church, and a Redeemer will have come to Zion again. See, this is the story. It's, it's the, the beauty of the scriptures, by the way, uh, that the, the word of God is so perfectly weaved by the Holy Spirit that it can tell us this is what's going to happen here, this is what's going to happen then, and this is what's going to happen out in the future. Now, when it comes to the Redeemer returning to Zion, here's a couple of things that as followers of Christ, this is supposed to give us hope. Uh, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but you can maybe think through it. Maybe you, like me, you grew up in the church and you'd hear the adults and they would talk about Jesus' the second coming, and you'd be like, I don't really want that to happen. You're like, I really want to get married first. I want to drive. Uh, I'd like to get a job. Like, I want to do a couple of things before Jesus comes. And particularly, like, around the, the second Gulf War, right, everybody was like, he's coming back. And there's been these seasons, haven't there? And there are always times, and, and we're supposed to read these signs. We're told this in the scriptures, right? That we're supposed to evaluate the signs, and we're supposed to uh, ask questions about Jesus coming back. We're not supposed to be blind to the idea of his return. We are, are also to hope in his return. We're to want Jesus to come back. And so if Jesus comes back before the end of this sermon, amen, awesome. I hope he does, right? Some of you were excited about that for other reasons. You're like, yeah, dude, shut up. All right. <laughs> we want him to come back. It is our great hope. And I know right now in the craziness of the world, uh, many of us are probably asking, like, is it sooner rather than later? Well, it is sooner than it was last week. I can tell you that much. And, and, and it's sooner than it was 100 years ago. We, we should have a, a basic understanding of what will it look like for Christ to come back. And, uh, and it is, of course, our great hope. Uh, what are some things that we can all look to and say, this is what we know about Jesus' return. Here's one thing we know about Jesus' return. Uh, no one, no one knows the exact date and time other than the Father. We know that. And so anyone right now who's telling you this is all of the reasons why, uh, 24 reasons, Jesus is coming back in 24, okay, I would not read that, all right? You can read it, just it's probably as good as the Babylon Bee, right? It's, it, no one knows. No one knows. There were 80 reasons why he was coming back in 1980, right? And, uh, and you're always going to see this. Uh, it comes, people say, oh, this is exactly why he's coming, and then times go and seasons go. Now, we are to evaluate the signs. Here's a couple of things that we're also supposed to know about Jesus' return, that when Jesus comes back, we, his people, and his church are to be found about the work of his kingdom. And so whether he comes back in 15 minutes or 15 years, 15 decades, 15 centuries, who knows, when he does come back, he should find us about his work. He should find us preaching the gospel. He should find us standing for truth. He should find us uh, reestablishing truth in the public square. He should find us hopeful about the future. He should find us not having given up. He should find us looking and saying, I believe that the best can still be yet to come. I always make a joke about the Puritans, okay? I love the Puritans. Great group of people, right? They were facing pretty hard times. And if the Puritans acted like how some modern Christians do, they would have just said to themselves, well, you know what? This is all going to end. It's all, Jesus is going to come back. Everything's going to get bad. Why don't we just stay put? 
I'm really glad they didn't do that. What'd they do instead? They said, well, maybe Jesus is coming back because persecution is high and things are bad, but we don't know. So let's get into the boat, go over to the new land and build something for God's kingdom. We don't know when he's coming back. And so since we don't know when he's coming back, let's have a Puritan mindset and say, let's just keep being about the business of building his kingdom. That's how we should be found. Now, we are to read the signs. And one of the signs we know, there are wars and rumors of wars. And there's been a lot of war throughout time. There's been a lot of wars and rumors of wars. Another one of the signs is earthquakes. And I did hear a study that there's been more of those in the last 100 years than any other time in recorded history. And so, I mean, you know, people can skew these statistics however they want. Uh, is Jesus coming back soon? I don't know. I hope. But what are we going to do? Keep finding yourself faithful. Keep finding yourself faithful. And listen, if you like to read on this stuff and you like to study this stuff, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Read, study on it, and we'll talk about it. I'm praying about what this looks like to preach through uh, this kind of stuff as we get into next year. Uh, but it's always good to rally around. What are the key points of this? He is coming back. We should be found faithful. No one knows the time, so just keep going. Amen? Amen. Now, uh, and I think when this stuff happens too, by the way, one of the things is we do, we look out at the world, we see the things that are going on. Uh, of course, you can't turn on any news site right now and not see things that are going on in Israel. And maybe you've been asking the question, you're like, well, well, I'm a Christian. What, what should I think about this? How should I feel about this? I was sitting in Panera earlier this week, and uh, I'm, I'm sitting there in Panera. I was, I was working on my sermon. I think it was Monday afternoon, and I see some guy walk in. He's wearing this Israel shirt. And I said, hey, uh, you know, great shirt. And we started chatting. He's he said, oh, yeah, we're on a bus, and we're headed to D.C. For, um, for the rally. And so he's, he and I, we sat down, and we had this nice little conversation uh, about this. And I said, you know, that's awesome. Thank you for going and, and all of this kind of stuff. And, um, and, and, and I just want to be really clear about something, followers of Christ. Um, we should always be on Team Israel. This shouldn't be like a mystery, Okay. Like, it, it, like, don't try to play this weird game where they're trying to play right now, where, like, somehow terrorism and just war are the same thing. They're not. Terrorism is evil. Just war can actually be righteous. I was talking with somebody the other day, and they were like, I remember uh, one of those sermons you preached a, a long time ago, and this was years ago, uh, the second time I ever churched publicly in front of adults. I was 25, okay? And I get my topic, and they're like, hey, what do you, and I was like, what, do I, what am I preaching on? They're like, you're preaching on just war. I was like, woo! I was 25, okay, uh, and, I, and I preached this sermon on just war, I'm glad I got to preach that sermon um, because it, it taught me some things. Um, just war is called just war because it's just. And it's called just war because it's just from God's perspective, not just man's, okay? And so um, we need to be very, very clear about this type of thing. Uh, we need to not be afraid of this kind of thing, okay? Uh, and as followers of Christ, um, a redeemer is going to return to Zion, Zion, like, God's going to go back, and he's going to appear first to, to the Jewish people in Israel, right? Uh, and so we should be praying for the nation of Israel. We should always be on Team Israel, uh, and we should not be ambiguous about this, okay? Um, because a Redeemer will return to Zion, to Zion. Now, 
from a corporate perspective, we always have a hope. We have a hope uh, as the church that Jesus is coming back. This is good news. Uh, but it's a corporate hope, but it's also an individual hope. And so let me tell you this morning, uh, if you're without hope, if you're in a season of difficulty, one place that the Christian anchors himself or herself in hope is the assurance of your salvation, the confidence that you can have resting in Christ. Hebrews talks about this. There's a rest that we can have, a holy rest because we know that Jesus did the work of our salvation for us. And it's a rest that it gives us, but it's also a hope. It's a hope that we have in Christ's return, but it's a hope that we have knowing our eternal state. And so if someone says, Stephen, do you know where you're going when you die? Yes. I don't have a mystery about this. I don't live in a constant fear of, well, maybe I won't get there. Like, I have a hope and a confidence that when I believed in Christ by grace alone, that Christ adopted me into his family, and he who Christ adopts, he doesn't give them up later, okay? And so I want you to rest in something, and that is the assurance and the confidence of your salvation. Now, we're a post-denominational church. Some of you, maybe you've heard us use this term before. We think we made it up. Though it was funny because I was talking to somebody out in Colorado the other day, and they're like, where'd you get the term post-denominational? So I was like, I think we made it up. And he goes, well, that's funny because I have a buddy. He thinks he made it up. <laughs> I said, well, maybe just the Holy Spirit is doing the same thing across the country, right? Like, would sound like the Holy Spirit, right? And so we call ourselves a post-denominational church. We unify around core doctrine, and we have a stated uh, belief in core doctrine and all of these kind of things. You can read it on our website. Uh, but being a, a post-denominational church, we also tell ourselves we're going we're gonna to discuss, not divide, around secondary doctrinal issues, right? And um, one issue that comes up often, uh, people will ask, is about the assurance of salvation. And, and, and I will say this. There are Christians, theologians, people that I love that are on both sides of this particular aisle. Uh, but even, uh, but being a post-denominational church, um, I still get to preach every Sunday, okay? Uh, and so every uh, once in a while, uh, I get to just tell you, uh, even though there are things that we can discuss, not divide on, I get to give my perspective uh, because I'm the one who gets to preach every Sunday. And, and I want you to know uh, that I'm a firm believer, and I want you to rest in the assurance of your salvation, okay? God's grace. I always say it this way. If you didn't earn your salvation... How can you unearn it? If it wasn't your work that, 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 that secured it in the first place, why will it be your work that insecures it, or unsecures it, however you want, whatever, right? Rest in the saving work of Christ. Now, let me also say this. This is not to say that the parable of the sower, which teaches us that there are many who will think they have arrived at salvation, and they will even look like they have arrived at salvation, but will have not. And there is some of us. Maybe we have a doubt in our salvation because it hasn't yet actually been a real conversion. You've been resting on your own works. You, you, you haven't been born again, like the Scripture says. You've been playing church. You've been playing faith. Um, you still think that you're saved because you're just kind of better than everybody else or because you grew up in church or because you did something awesome. No, the Bible is very clear to us that we are saved by grace alone through Christ, okay? 
not our own works. In fact, Paul addresses this in Galatians. Uh, in Galatians, Paul uses some of the strongest words he ever uses. At one point in Galatians, he actually says this, anyone who changes the gospel, let him be cursed. And then later on, he explains what he means by them changing the gospel. And he says it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. But because by works of the law, no one, no one, no one, no one then, no one now, no one in the future, no one ever will be justified by works of the law. We will be justified by Christ, faith, and grace, right? That's how justification happens. Friend, you can rest confident and assured in a salvation that was won for you by Christ. You say, well, how do I know it's certain, Stephen? Well, two things. One, I preached through all summer. You can go back and listen to it. Uh, there should be the evidence of TOL that you adhere or, or believe in the truth of God's word, that you obey God's word, and that you love God's people and God himself. These are evidences of a genuine conversion. That you, again, the truth obedience, and you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe you're like, well, what if I'm still struggling with something? Okay, that's called sanctification. You can still be in the process of sanctification and be assured in your salvation, right? Uh, but there should be, uh, you should be in a process of sanctification, not a stalled out sanctification. Like, well, like where the Holy Spirit is still moving, where there's progress that's happening, where you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit more. That's one evidence of the, uh, the assurance of our salvation. The second evidence of the assurance of our salvation is actually right here in the Isaiah 59 text. Uh, and, and we also see it in Ephesians chapter 1, where we are given the Holy Spirit as a down payment. Uh, that's the term that the Scripture uses, a down payment of our salvation. In other words, that there is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Or, or in you is this kind of this confidence or this assurance of our salvation. And so the first thing in looking forward, the first reason that we have hope is that we have hope in a salvation granted to us by Christ, right, through faith that happens because of the grace of God. And so there's a confidence in that. I'm going to rest in that. I'm going to look forward in that. I'm looking forward to my eternity uh, with the Heavenly Father. Uh, and I'm looking forward to Christ coming back. And if it's in this life, great. If it's not in this life, then I'll just rise with him first when he comes back. There's a hope in that. Resting in the assurance of our salvation. But then, there's a hope in this second thing. And so what we see next in the text is this. The, the, the next way we look forward is he says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them. Oh, um, I, I missed an important part here. Verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This, this is actually a really important part, but I didn't skip by this. Who is this for? Everybody? No. It's for those who do what? Who turn from transgression, who repent from sin, who experience genuine conversion. 
As Paul writes it in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and confess in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But it's a, it's a conversion. There has to be a turning from sin. And so, my friend, the, the, uh, the, every Christian should, uh, whenever you get into a moment where you have zero desire to turn from sin, that should be a wake-up call. That should be a moment where you go, whoa, whoa, what's going on inside of me that I have no desire to turn from sin? And the gospel teaches us that the gospel is powerful enough, the gospel is strong enough to rescue us out of any and all sin, right? And that the gospel uh, it should be constantly at work in us. I'll show you how it does that in a moment, uh, that we want to turn from sin. Because the promises here uh, that he's talking about, the assurance of salvation, right? The assurance of our eternity. And, and by the Jesus coming back uh, is only good news to those of us who are in Christ. It's bad news to those who are not. Why? Because the time is up in that moment. This is why we keep preaching the gospel. This is why we keep finding ourselves faithful in the time between now and then. And so this promise is secured by the repentance of sin, right? Turning from transgression and embracing the gospel in Christ. Those of us who have done that then, who have walked in that, now there is an assurance. There is a confidence in our salvation. And then this is what God says he'll do next. He says, once that happens, once there is the turning from sin there, he says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them. In other words, this is the commitment I will make to those who do that. He says, my spirit that is upon you. So what happens next in our spiritual journey? And I love that when, uh, at the end of this, this, this important chapter in the Word of God, Isaiah 59, that he actually ends it. He ends it exceptionally hopeful, but he also ends it exceptionally, uh, I'll say practical, and in a way, almost basic. He takes us back to the heart of the gospel, that, that we need to be a people that understand salvation by grace first, and then we need to be a people that understand salvation, uh, and then life in our salvation, life in the new life, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, what will happen next? He says, my commitment to you is this. I will put my Holy Spirit upon you. Now, similarly to the prophetic um, word that a redeemer will come to Zion, the Holy Spirit here, we see this particular prophecy fulfilled in three ways as well. Uh, we see it fulfilled first in the life of Jesus. Uh, and we see it at the moment of his baptism. Jesus is baptized, and in the moment of his baptism, by the way, this is one reason why we believe in a Trinitarian God uh, in that particular moment. God the Father speaks Jesus is uh, presence in the flesh. He's baptized. And what happens? In the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon Christ. Uh, Luke chapter 4 teaches us this later, uh, where Jesus gets up in front of everybody, and he says, um, the Holy Spirit has come upon me so that I might proclaim good news to the captive. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to do this ministry. I'm doing what I'm going to do, it, and I'm doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is going to fall on Christ. First, it's the first fulfillment. The second fulfillment, then, is going to be in Acts chapter 2, where there is going to be uh, the, the, the church as a whole is going to sit under now the, the covenant of the Holy Spirit, the falling of the Holy Spirit, which was promised by Jesus throughout John 15, 16, 17, and 18. The Holy Spirit then is going to fall on the church, and then all throughout, from that moment to this moment, what we see now is that those who are baptized in Christ, baptized from grace, 
raised, right, uh, and baptized into their salvation, there is then a receiving of the Holy Spirit. Paul noticed early on in the church that there was a distortion of people's understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit. And so in his letter to the Galatians, he looks out at the Galatians and goes, whoa, hold on, guys. You are missing something really, really important. This is how he says it in Galatians chapter 3. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What's he saying here? He said, you didn't obtain uh, your, the, the, the Holy Spirit through your own work. You didn't uh, obtain the, the Holy Spirit because you adhered to the law in such a way. You obtained the Holy Spirit through faith. Now you've stepped into your salvation. Are you now trying to be perfected? Are you trying to be sanctified? Said more clearly, are you trying to now live out your Christian faith by your own strength? He says, if you are, foolishness, foolishness. He says, you have to live out your Christian life now in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the second reason the Christian has great hope, and this is personal hope. You might be facing something right now, and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Well, one of the ways I know you can get through this is that if you are in Christ, you now have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you to walk through the season that you're walking through. And if you have said to yourself, I just, I don't think I can do this, or I've tried to do that, I've tried to do that, one of the lies that the enemy wants you to believe is that you have given it everything you have gotten in your own strength, and that's the only way to get through or to get past where you're at right now, and if you haven't done it, then there's no way to do it. But the truth of the Word of God teaches us that the power of the Holy Spirit in you can move you through that season and can move you past whatever that thing is. This is the Holy Spirit inside of you. Luke later uh, in his gospel teaches us that the power of the Holy Spirit is not something that uh, God wants to like uh, hold back from us. It's not a great mystery and it's not something that he just wants to like give you a little bit of. It's something that he wants to pour out on you. If any of you have kids that are like four, five, six, okay, isn't it interesting how much more generous they are with uh, juice or apple cider than you are? Right? So if, like, my daughter asks me for juice, I'm like, I will give you some juice. And I give her a little bit of juice, and she takes the juice, and she drinks the juice, right? And then she wants more. If she says, Daddy, I will get myself some juice, what do I have? I have apple cider pouring all over the table, right? They're much more generous with themselves. Now, let me flip the metaphor, okay? God wants to be unbelievably generous to you with the gift and the power of his Holy Spirit. He doesn't want to just give you a little bit. He wants to pour it out on you. And he, we're told, ask for it. In Luke, you're like, like, pray and receive and ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. And some of us might have fallen into the trap of the foolish Galatians. We are living a Christian life. We believe in salvation by grace alone. But we are now operating in our own strength. And I would tell you, stop, receive, ask, be filled, empowered, whatever word you want to use, by the Holy Spirit and live a Christian life through the power of His Spirit. 
And how does the, the, what does the manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit look like? It looks like a lot of things. It looks like fruit of the Holy Spirit. It looks like the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some of those gifts we would call like the higher gifts or the spiritual gifts, right? And uh, I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe those gifts died, right? They, they, they can exist today. Um, they, they, uh, and, and then they also look like the more practical gifts, gifts of wisdom, gifts of generosity, gift of hospitality, gift of uh, leadership, all of these different things. But the point of it is that as Christians, we have hope going into the future because we know that we're walking and being led by the power of the Holy Spirit as we walk into that, that future. And so what do you see here? He, he's ending it, and he's saying, okay, Israelites, Isaiah's ending his book here. He's saying, well, how do we move forward? Where do we go from here? He goes, well, I'm going to send you a salvation, and I'm going to send you a powerful Holy Spirit. How do we understand this today? We're going to receive a salvation by grace, we're going to receive then the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to walk forward as a grace-fueled, Holy Spirit-empowered people. And as you do that, then you look into the future, and it doesn't matter how dark it might look when I'm, when I'm um, fueled by grace and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I don't need to be afraid of what a future looks like. Then what next? Look, look how he's just walking through this. He, grace, a salvation by grace, a filling and a power of the Holy Spirit. And then he's going to say this. He's going to say, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring. God is looking forward here. He said, I want to talk about a generational thing. And we around here, we always talk about being a multi-generational church, and I am so glad that we are a multi-generational church. Um, but we need to not just be a multi-generational church. We need to be church that has a multi-generational mindset. And what does it mean to have a multi-generational mindset? Um, it means that we, uh, that we take care to every generation, but we also, I'll talk a lot about this next week, we make decisions based upon future generations as well. It, it, we don't just celebrate the fact that God has gathered many generations here or different ages. We do celebrate that, but we also celebrate that the work that we are doing is a generational work, that our hope is not that Redemption Church is a 10-year-old church someday or a 20-year-old church, but a 200-year church if Christ does not come back. That this is a generation, and we make generational decisions and I'll talk about some of those next week. But those generational decisions, and we see this, by the way, you could overlay what you see here at the end of Isaiah 59 with the teachings of the fallen churches in Revelations uh, chapter 3 and 4. And you can see that every one of them, where they fell apart, it was some kind of uh, misapplication or distortion of what he was teaching here. Not operating out of grace and the obedience that comes out of grace. Not operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then this third part, he says, the word of God. And he says here, do not let the word depart from your mouth. Now, just to clarify real quick, when it says don't let the word depart out of your mouth, he's not saying don't speak it. He's not saying keep it in. 
No, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that, uh, that, that the, the, the word of God and the power of the word of God, right, should always be in you, right? It should always be what you speak out of. It should always be what uh, fills your mind. Uh, James says it this way, the implanted word of God, like the word of God should be planted inside of you, right? That word of God should be constantly uh, at, uh, empowering you, right? Constantly learning. Uh, James James calls it a mirror. You use the Word of God, and it's like a self-reflection, right? Uh, and, and so the Word of God should be passed down from generation to generation to generation. Uh, the book of Hebrews says this about the Word of God, that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. By the way, if you're a person who isn't very good at evaluating yourself, right, one of the best ways to evaluate yourself is consistent time in the Word of God. When you consistently are in the Word of God and then you're inviting the Holy Spirit into that moment, it allows you to evaluate even your own blind spots and say, God, what, what, what needs to change inside of me, right? And this Word of God, he's saying, should be passed down from generation to generation to generation. The practical side of that we'll get into a little bit more next week, but where we need to rest this morning is that it is the power of God's Word then that gives us hope. It is the power of God's Word that we see. It is a living and an act word. Because it's a living and an active word, that's exactly why uh, I say the word of God is as relevant today as the day that it was written. It's also why we say uh, that it tells us what happened, what is happening, and what will happen all at once because it is a living and an active word. And one of the biggest lies of the enemy right now uh, is that the, the word of God is irrelevant. It has nothing to say to our current moment. I hope that studying Isaiah 59 and the clarity in which it brings our current cultural moment, right, to, to light, uh, rest for you forever that the Word of God is always relevant. Like, I don't know how you can't read Isaiah 59. Well, I do know how. It's because if you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear, right? But uh, for those of us who are in Christ, we have been given those eyes and those ears to look and go, wow, the Word of God, it always has exactly what we need to hear for the moment that we're in, this living Word of God. And so where does all of this then build into or conclude in? It's saying, this is a people. Look at, look at the people that um, Isaiah is talking about here. He's saying, how do, you, how do you move forward? Well, redemption will come. Okay? So there's a, there's a grace. You're a grace-driven uh, person. You're a Holy Spirit-empowered uh, person. And then you are, like, filled with the Word of God. He said, that's how you move forward. A grace that leads to the power of the Holy Spirit, that leads to living out of the Word of God. And then where does that conclude itself? Well, it finds itself then right here at the end of it. He says, your children's offspring from this time forth and forevermore. And so we can ask ourselves the question, well, how is it then that this gets passed down from generation to generation to generation? How do we know that it's true, uh, that it'll go forth from this time forth forevermore? Or maybe said another way, how practically has have these truths and is God's redemption strategy, how practically has it been passed down from generation to generation to generation? It's been passed down through his church. 
And so the fourth reason to hope here, right, the first reason is the assurance of our salvation. The second is uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit. The third is the power of God's living and active word. And the fourth is a church that will never, ever be stopped. And right from the beginning, right from the beginning, what did Satan try to do? He tried to stop the church. In Acts chapter 2, his first tactic was this. He used a bunch of uh, their, uh, their people who were like, what's going on there? The Holy Spirit just fell. And they got up there and like, don't worry about them. They're all drunk and they're crazy. And Peter stands up and he's like, guys, listen, you might think we're crazy. It's only 9 a.m. No one's been drinking. This is real. Then you get in Acts chapter 3. You see an incredible miracle. And what does the enemy do? He tries to use an incredibly powerful miracle as a reason again to be against the church instead of seeing God for who he is. In Acts chapter 4, they arrest them. In Acts chapter 5, they command them by the power of the government, right? This would have been an early sign for us, right? By the power of the government to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, then, they kill one of the leaders. In Acts chapter 8, there's a launch of a massive persecution. You're six chapters in to the launching of the church, and the enemy has already used six different tactics to try to destroy and defeat the church. And guess what? Every time the enemy tries the tactic to destroy and defeat the church, what happens? The church grows, it grows, it grows, and it grows. Why? Because from this time forth, forevermore, 700 years before the church was planted, God decreed that once his church started, it would never stop again, that it would just keep on going that not even the gates of hell would prevail against it. And so now for 2,000 years, the church that Jesus came to plant has been on the move, and every tactic from bad doctrine to tyrannical government has been used to try and stop it, and none of them have worked, and none of them will ever work. The church will keep on going. It'll never stop. And guess what, friend? You and I are invited into it. You and I, then, are invited into this Isaiah 59 prophecy. We are invited to step in and to be the hope that the world needed. In the midst of a fallen culture, uh, an apostate church, in the time when you look out and you go, I don't know what, uh, what the future looks like, the Christian rests confidently in a salvation that comes from grace and a Holy Spirit empowering the Word of God that can cut to the heart and the power of a unified church and says, I I am looking forward, and it doesn't matter how much it seems like darkness has prevailed. I know the end of the story. The church will never die, and Christ will come back, so I'm going to remain hopeful and optimistic, and Jesus, if you come back in 15 minutes or 15 centuries, you will find me a part of your work. That is how the Christian looks forward. And so, friend, at the end of this series, it is unbelievably hopeful. And we don't have to, as Christians, we don't have to be scared of reality. And we don't have to cover up reality. We don't have to look and go, well, maybe it's not as bad as we think. I don't know. I think it probably is as bad as we think. Like, it's gotten pretty crazy. I mean, every week I could get up here and be like, this, this week in the world of crazy, right? I mean, I wasn't going to do it, but okay. 
Bin Laden got famous again on TikTok. In a good way. Like when you didn't think you could get any weirder, right? Bin Laden is being elevated as maybe somebody who had some good stuff to say. Okay. Wow. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, right? You look at that and you go, okay, now we're in a world where that's a, real, <laughs> that's a reality, right? We're in a world where everything else we've talked about this, this series is a reality. And you go, well, how do I look for What do I do moving forward? And what does God do here? He takes, the, takes all of it, he takes all of the craziness, takes all of the mystery, all, all of everything going on, and he goes, and he brings it back in. He goes, let me tell you why you don't have to lose hope. I will bring a redeemer. He will be powered by the Holy Spirit. The word of God will be fulfilled ultimately and completed in him. He is the, he is the word, right? He is the living word. And he will plant a movement through his death and resurrection that will never stop. The believer on the other side then of this movement goes, well, how do I have hope? How do I keep moving? What am I supposed to do from here? You are supposed to be changed by a salvation of grace and grace alone. You are to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and operate and be led by the Holy Spirit in everything that you do. You are to allow the Word of God to convict, cut, encourage, and equip you and break into your heart and change your thinking. And then you are to unify and edify. Uh, you are to unify into the body of Christ so that it can be edified and equipped to accomplish all that it can. And no matter how dark it gets, never stop believing that the light of the gospel in any moment can break through and can completely change the course of events. That's how you're supposed to move forward. And so that's how we move forward out of this series. And um, I, I want to end here today uh, just walking through each of those points and making sure that your heart is in proper alignment with those. Next week, we'll get a little bit more practical, and then we'll just keep moving forward as God would call us to, uh, because it doesn't matter how dark it gets, the light of the gospel is inside of us, and his strategy for redemption is his church. And so the church has always got hope. We're the beacon of it, and we get to bring it to the world. Will you pray with me? So, Father, we start where you started, which is experiencing our redemption. A redeemer would come to Zion, and a redeemer would also come to the individual heart. And so if you're here today, and you have not embraced salvation, don't overcomplicate it. Let me tell you first, you didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But Jesus earned it for you. And he pours it out freely through something called grace. It is faith then that activates it. Belief in the story of Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection from it. Embrace it this morning. And the scripture says you are saved. Believe in the gospel. And for maybe you would say you've already done that. But the reality is you're still believing at the core of who you are, that somehow you just kind of earned it. Would you repent of any of that in you today? You didn't earn it because you were more obedient. You didn't earn it because you were more faithful in church attendance. Those are outcomes of the gospel, not things that earn it. Would you rest today fully that despite you, you are saved? Christ, Christ.
Christ, the gracious king, has redeemed you. Out of that, then what? Would you be filled with the Spirit? And God, would you make us a Spirit-led, Spirit-filled, fruit-bearing people? Would you help us to reflect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Would you help us to operate in whatever gift it is that you have given us for the building of your kingdom and your church? Father, for those who are trying to live like the foolish Galatians today, could they repent and turn from trying to live their own Christian life? Lord, for those who have stalled out in their sanctification because they think they've somehow got it all figured out, would you humble them this morning, fill them with your spirit, and would they walk into an incredible new season of growth? Father, would you allow us to then be people of your word, that it is always the word of God, always the word of God that informs our thinking, that we're always allowing the word of God to break in and to continue to cut to our heart. Lord, I fear that there have been some who maybe they have been in church now for years or decades, Lord, and, and they keep hearing it, but it's not actually changing anything. Oh, Lord, what a warning sign. Father, if we have been the same for the last five, ten, whatever years, oh, Lord, that something is stalled out, would you wake us back up through your word? And then, Father, would you give each and every one of us a picture of the body of Christ like you have here at the end and like you show us all throughout the New Testament, that there is no greater call to the follower of Christ than then partnering and stepping in to the body we were not made to do this on our own. We were not called to simply be passive observers of the body, but to engage in it and to be a part of it. And so, Father, would you then build inside of us a zeal for your house? There are two great leaders. You say that zeal for your house. David had a zeal for your house, Lord. And then Christ had a zeal for your house, and if Christ had a zeal for your body, uh, for, for your house, Lord, for your church, how much more should we? And so, Father, would you help us to put away all of those secondary pursuits that distract us, all of those worldly things that we go after, and instead to have a zeal for your body, a zeal for your house, Lord? And Father, that is the hope as we move forward. It's exactly what you would call us to. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring everyone in here, bring us all together through the power and the unity of one Holy Spirit, bringing us together, equipping us for the work, and bringing light to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's message. For more information, you can visit Experience Redemption on Instagram or Facebook for updates, service times, and ways you can get connected. Want to partner and support the work of Redemption Church? You can give online at experienceredemption.com slash give online to explore your giving options. We also stream services on both YouTube and Facebook Live, so be sure to join us and share your experience. Thanks for checking out the podcast. We will see you soon.